people in every moment of their life, the Psalms, there is a Psalm for every situation in life. Um, and so it was important for me to learn that, but it was also important for our church to learn that. So three years ago, when we came to the summer, I said, I'm just going to start preaching through the Psalms every summer, and we're going to make our way through the Psalms. And so that first summer, I preached through chapters 1 through 15. The following summer, 16 to 30. Last summer, 31 to 45. And so this summer, we started at 46, and we're going to go through Psalm 60. And my goal is, after 10 years of summers, we would have preached through all 150 psalms as a church and as a pastor. And um, at that time, I will know for sure that you forgot every single sermon. So we'll just start again. Okay? Sound good? <laughs> uh, so that's the plan, and, and we'll see how that goes. I don't know if that'll be true in 10 years or not, but uh, that's my plan for now. So... Uh, thank you for joining us today. If you are new or if you haven't been here to, to be with us in these times, uh, the Psalms really have been good. Uh, before we get into this song, you see that it's written by the sons of Korah. You see that in the heading of the psalm. The sons of Korah were a group of musicians, really what we would equate to modern singer-songwriters, the ones who not only sung and led the people in worship, but they also wrote songs for worship. And so this is one of those songs. There's, I believe, ten songs, maybe a few more in the songs that were written by the sons of Korah. And so when you see that phrase, that's what it's talking about. It would be equivalent to, you know, people that, uh, or groups that we know of today, maybe groups like Hillsong or Indelible Grace or Sandra McCracken, these singer-songwriter type people who, out of a desire and a love for God's word and his truth, and also a desire to lead people in worship and help them sing his truth, they write songs in order to sing them in worship. So that's what one of these is. This was intended to be sung in worship, which all the songs in a way were written to be sung, were, were written to be sung in corporate worship times. Uh, but this one really specifically was written for that purpose, to be sung by a congregation during public worship. So you can be thinking of that as we go through this psalm today. Starting at verse 1, Psalm 48 says this, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north. The city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Selah. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He 
not to feel like a repetitive, mundane task of walking through these passages, but that each and every one would speak to us specifically. And so I pray now that this psalm would speak to my heart and would speak to this congregation, those who are here today worshiping with us, and any that might watch online, that you would use this psalm to speak the truth of your word into our hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen. What I want you to see this morning from this psalm is that because the Lord is great, he is worthy of great praise. Because the Lord is great, he is worthy of great praise. I'm going to look at that as we walk through this psalm in three ways. The first is that the Lord is great. We'll look a little bit at his greatness, and then we'll see that he's greater than all others. And then we will see that because of this, he is greatly to be praised. And so if you have your Bible, keep that open to Psalm 48. We'll be walking through this passage and looking at these verses specifically. So the first thing I want you to see is that the Lord is great. Now when he uses the term Lord here, you'll see there in your passage that it is translated as an all capital Lord. Which if you've been here in the past, you know that in the Old Testament when you see that as an all caps Lord, that's the covenant name of Yahweh. Which translated into our English Bibles comes across as Lord. Some translations would have that as Jehovah. And so that, that's who that's talking about. It's, it's the covenant Lord. It's the Lord of his people. It's the Lord who has made promises to his people and is fulfilling those promises. He is the covenant God, the covenant Lord over his people. Later, it will actually use the term God and talk about how this Lord, this covenant Lord, is God. And, and he is God because he is the creator of all things. And he is God over all things and all people. He's a God over all gods and the king above all kings and the Lord above all lords. But you'll see that you get the generic term for God in this passage, but you also get the covenant term, which is more personal and more in, in, intimate and more relational. And so the Lord is great. Great is the Lord. And this, this, this idea of his greatness really ties in with his glory. That because he is God, he is glorious, and he is deserving of all glory, honor, and praise. And because he is glorious, that term glory in the Old Testament also can be interpreted or have the, the implication of the idea of weight, something that is weighty. And so God is great. He is weighty. Concepts of God and thinking of God should really weigh us down in some ways when we come to try to imagine God's greatness at some point our minds will reach their limits he's great he's too great for us to know fully now I had a professor in seminary that said and, and we'll see this in a second that God we, we cannot totally comprehend God but God is totally incomprehensible we can't totally comprehend him but he's not, I said it wrong, we cannot totally comprehend him, but he is not totally incomprehensible. Now where do we get that in the scripture? Well, it says he has made himself known. We'll come to that in a little bit. But this God is great, and because he is great, we'll see he's greatly to be praised. Now, we get this language of the city of God, and it says things like he is greatly to be praised in the city. 
talks about his holy mountain being beautiful in elevation. And then it talks about Mount Zion, the city of the great king. And when you see this in the Old Testament, when you see phrases like Jerusalem or the city of God or sometimes Israel or Mount Zion or the mountain of God, all of these are phrases which is meant to draw God's people in the Old Testament to the city of Jerusalem. It was set on a mountain. That mountain was often called Mount Zion. And then you see other times in the scriptures where Mount Zion is actually equated to the, the view of heaven. We also see that Jerusalem in Revelation 21, the fulfillment of the city of God, is heaven itself. And so in the Old Testament, uh, I've been trying to, we've been trying to explain this to our kids as well. This is good for all of us to understand. When we read our Old Testament with a Christian perspective, because Jesus came, his Holy Spirit has indwelt, which means he moved into believers' hearts. We are, we have the presence of God in us as believers. And the church represents all those little mini temples of God. Alright, the temple of God was a place where God's glory dwelt, where his glory remained. And so anytime you read in your Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, things like Israel or things like Mount Zion or Jerusalem or the city of God, you can say, okay, what he's talking about is believers, but even in a broader term, he's talking about the church. And that is a completely fair application. We can have that theological discussion outside of the sermon if you really want to have that theological sermon. But Jerusalem, Mount Zion, Israel, I do not believe you read those in a literal, physical light anymore. But those are describing the church, and those are describing ultimate fulfillment, which will take place in heaven. And we see that in the book of Revelation very clearly, that the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven and will take place on earth. And what happens there is that God dwells with his people, and his people worship him in his presence. Always, which is what this is talking about. So what we see here is that it, he is great and his city is great. And what we'll get to in the last point is what that means for us then as the church. But what I want you to see in this first point is that God is great. And because he is great, his people and his city are great. Not in and of themselves. Jerusalem actually it, you know, was not great agriculturally. It wasn't the highest mountain in the region, but it was great because that's where God was. And it's the same thing with the church. Paul even says God chose the weak things of the world in order to display his power and weakness. And so the church, you know, when you see people in the culture, I've heard this, I've said this before. You see people in the world who are great thinkers or great artists or great athletes. Sometimes they're believers, sometimes they're not. But we're tempted to say, wow, if that person was a believer, imagine what God could do with them. <clears throat> Have you ever thought that or said that or heard people say that? But what God says is, no, I don't want the strong people in the world. I want the weak people. Because it's through weakness that my strength is made perfect. And so God actually chooses the weak things of the world in order to display his greatness. And so the church is great. Not because the people in and of themselves signify greatness, but because God who dwells in them is great. 
uh, Abraham Kuyper, who was a theologian and pastor, once talked about the church, and he talked about the church in terms of a battle. And he said the church is like an army tent of the Lord. It's where we come for healing. It's where we come for rest. It's where we come for protection because it's guarded. And it's where we come to be strengthened for the battle. And that's this idea of the city of God, the church of God. It's where God dwells. It's where he cares for his people and really equips and strengthens them to go into the battle against the enemy, which is sin and the devil and all things that are against Scripture itself. And so that's all of the symbolism that's going on here. So before we move on from this, what we see is that this God, he's great. He's also the king. And so to apply all these things... What we want to see first is that Jesus now has fulfilled this for us ultimately. Jesus is our king. Philippians 2 says, God, he was equal with God and he came to serve. He suffered, he died on the cross, and then he rose. And the Bible says in Philippians 2 that Jesus has been given a name above every name. That name of Jesus is the covenant name Lord. He is Lord. And because of that, Jesus is worthy of our honor and praise. So Jesus is the covenant Lord that's described here in the, first, in the first verse. He is worthy of our praise. But we also see that God has made himself known. Look at verse 3. It says, within her citadels, God has made himself known. And this is really talking about revelation. Not the book of revelation, but the, God, the fact that God has made himself known to us. And it, and it says, as a fortress, and it says, in his city, he's made himself known. And what this really means for us as a church is that the church is primarily the place where God is going to reveal himself. And he, do, he does that in corporate worship, but he does that also through the teaching and the preaching of his word. We, in our, in our worship tradition... I'm not talking about like all the bells and whistles and all that. I'm just talking about our philosophy and our approach to worship is that worship is the most important thing that happens every week. Corporate worship. And it's because you hear the preaching of God's word, which is the focus of our Sunday mornings. Not because of the preacher, but because of the word of God itself. And everything in our service revolves around the preaching of his word. This is our conviction, that, that God is making himself known, and he does that in your own time of reading his word. He does that as you interact with other believers in fellowship, but the primary way he reveals himself is through public worship, which is focused on preaching and expounding his word to you. And so before we move on from this first point, do you believe church is that important? Now, I know, I know I'm preaching to people who are here today, but do you believe public worship is that important? And you saw this in our church. We didn't want to be flippant about it, but you saw this in our church when we were one of the first churches in town. I think we were the first church in town that opened back up during COVID. Because after several weeks, it was my conviction, listen, we want to be safe, but people need church. This is the most important thing that happens, and we need this for each other and for our own good. It doesn't mean God can't make himself known in other ways, but his word seems to be very clear. 
This is primarily how he reveals himself to believers, through the public worship and the public preaching of his word. And so that's the first thing for application. Jesus is king, and he has made himself known in these ways. The second thing we see is that he is, he is not only great, but he is greater than all others. Look at this in verses 4 through 8. He, he says that all the kings assembled. This is giving us a picture of all the kings of the nations assembling. And they came together, and as soon as they saw it, they were astounded. Now, this isn't talking about a literal historical event that takes place, but it's, it's almost describing a vision that they're having. What they're saying is, imagine all the kings of the earth, all the leaders of the earth, all of your you know, presidents and governors and emperors and kings and leaders and representatives coming together in this massive assembly. If God were to reveal himself in that moment, all of these great leaders that we would look up to maybe say, wow, they have a really strong personality, they're, they're really confident, they know what they're doing, they're gifted, they have a good mind, all these things. Well, if they were to come together and God were, were to reveal himself in that assembly, they would all fall down in amazement before him. Can you imagine that? That's the vision that the writer is trying to give you, that the kings of the nation are nothing compared to God. And they, if they were to encounter God's glory and presence, would be astounded. They would be in awe, and it says, and they would be in panic. They would take flight. What is it, what is it giving us a picture of? Well, all leaders of the earth, whether it's a leader of a country, or of a town, or of a city, or of a, a nation, all leaders of the earth are put there by God. And they are accountable to God. That's what the scripture says. They're actually there to be servants of God himself. But Psalm 2 actually says that all the kings of the nations are at war with God. Now there are some leaders who try to do what God has laid out in his word. There are some good godly leaders and, and leaders we should look up to. But if you look around the earth and look around the world, the majority of leaders really aren't following Christ. They just aren't. And one day, like we said earlier in our prayer, one day all the leaders of the earth throughout all history will encounter the glory of Christ. And if they did not follow him, and if they did not lead as if they were leading under his rule and reign as the king over all the earth, that they were just put there as an underservant of the great king, and if they did not lead and follow his example as a king, they're going to run away in fear. They're going to be confronted with the glory and justice of God and realize in that moment they're in trouble. There is a great, and the, the, the Bible also talks about this with relation to pastors. That there is a great way of responsibility on pastors, on elders, on anyone who leads in the church in the same way. We are accountable to God for how we lead. And kings of nations and leaders and presidents are also accountable to God for how they lead. So if at any point... As a citizen of a town, or of a country, or a member of a church, 
If you are displeased with the leadership, or if you are unhappy, or if you think your leadership is leading in the wrong direction, there are a couple things you can do because of that. The first is you can pray for them. That they would realize who's the true and rightful king, which is God himself. And that through that, they would be humbled and come to repentance and faith in him. We should all be praying that for our leaders. The second thing is, if that's not happening, you have a sure hope and a sure promise that one day those leaders will be confronted with the reality of who God is. And if they have not come to trust in him and follow his ways, they will cower in fear. Now that's a strong word, isn't it? And some of us in this room maybe are already realizing how applicable this is to us in our situation as a nation. Uh, and maybe maybe even as a, as a employee at a business whose leadership is just corrupt. The promise is one day all leaders at every level will be confronted with the reality of who God is. And if they have not come to him in faith and repentance, they will be astounded at his glory. And they will be confronted with the reality of this, this king who is worthy of all praise. So he's greater than all others. And that's the second thing. That's really what I wanted to focus there on those passages. And then the last thing we see is because he is great, because he is greater than all others, he is greatly to be praised. Now we see this in several places. Uh, we saw it earlier on in our passage, but look at verse 9. I'm just going to walk through these things. Um, so the first place we see that he is greatly to be praised is in our own hearts. Look at verse 9. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. So the first place he is to be praised is in our own hearts. As individuals, we are to think, look at that phrase, we have thought on your steadfast love, O God. When's the last time that you sat still just to think on the love of God? Just to dwell on the love of God for you? Now, where, where do we see this displayed most? We see it displayed most in the gospel. That God, this God who is king that we've been describing, this God who is worthy of all praise, we have sinned against him. We have rebelled against him that because of our sin, we have not honored him as he deserves. We have not praised and worshipped him as he deserves because of our sin. We have actually rebelled against the king of the universe who, de who demands obedience and perfection. And we have not been able to do that. And the Bible says if you have done that, then your rightful place before the king is judgment. That because of your sin... You deserve God's judgment and justice and punishment for sin. But because of his great love with which he loved us, he saved us, not because of righteous things done in us, but because of his mercy, which he displayed for us in his son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus was the gift of the Father's love to us. That Jesus came to live the perfect life that we could not live. That he perfectly obeyed the king, the king of the universe, his father, perfectly obeyed him, perfectly honored him while he was on earth, pointed others to him. And Jesus, really, the first part of his ministry, he said he came to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. He came to declare 
God is king, and we are to honor him as king. And you have not done that. And because you have not done that, you deserve judgment from this king. But instead of judgment, I'm coming to bring salvation. That's really what Jesus was all about. He was coming to make the citizens of the world, to bring them back into a right relationship with the king of the world. And it was through his love that he did this. So the gospel really spells this out. And this is why, really, it's those who understand the truth of this good news. Listen in. Only those who understand the gospel can rightly praise God. Only those who actually understand the gospel can appropriately praise God. Why do I say that? Now, a lot of people go to church. A lot of people think they're praising God, think they're worshiping God because they can get rowdy, because they can get noisy, because they can get solemn and quiet and serious. Whatever their reasons, a lot of people outwardly think they're praising God and worshiping God because they're going through the proper motions. Because they're accommodating to whatever worship culture they're involved in. But worship genuinely happens in the heart. And it happens as you first recognize who God is. That He is King. That He is great. That He demands and deserves all glory, honor, and praise. But it also happens as you realize, I have not done that. I have sinned against this great God. And so what, what does the gospel tell us? And what is really church meant to tell us? It's meant to tell us that Jesus came because of your sin to make you right with this holy king. And through the message of the gospel, that's really when we can enter into a place in our hearts where we recognize his steadfast love for us. And as a response to his love, what are we going to do? We're going to praise Him for His greatness. We're going to praise Him for His love, praise Him for His mercy, praise Him for His grace, praise Him for His justice, because only those who know that they are no longer under the condemnation of God can praise Him for His justice. Only those who have had the penalty of their sin removed can praise Him for being a righteous king, because those who don't know Him are going to cower in fear before his greatness. And this is really why in a lot of churches, you don't get much messages about God's wrath, about his anger. You, you'll hear about things like God is loving, and, and Jesus was all about love, and all these things. Jesus preached about hell more than any other person on earth. And it's because he understood who God was, how great our sin is, but he's also the one who is the most loving person who ever came on earth. Because he satisfied the anger and wrath of God for sin. It's only those who truly understand the gospel that can rightly praise God. So have you, when's the last time you just, you just dwelt on that? You just thought about God's love for you? This was actually one of Paul's prayers in Ephesians 3. He said that his prayer for the Ephesian believers is that they would have the power... To know how great God's love was for them in Jesus Christ. Do you ever think about the fact that Holy Spirit power, one of the greatest ways the Holy Spirit demonstrates his power in believers is by them being captivated by the love of Christ? 
I mean, we, we hear talk about Holy Spirit power, and we think about it in terms of maybe miracles, or we think about it in, in terms of, you know, great moments of worship and praise in a church setting. But Holy Spirit power, according to Paul, one of the greatest ways he displays his power in believers is by them coming to a deeper understanding of God's love for them in Christ. That's powerful. And that, that's what God is trying to do in all of us. He's working to do in all of us because a right understanding of who God is is going to lead us more and more into a right place of praise and worship. Verse 10 then says that he that, that all of the earth are to declare his praise. So your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. So the whole earth should really praise God because of who he is. But then in 11 through 13, it goes back to talking about Mount Zion and the daughters of Judah and uh, Zion and the citadels and all these things. It's talking about the city of God again. And who, what is that for us? What do we say? It's the church, right? So he also deserves our praise in the church. Because as believers come together who individually are experiencing the love of God and believing the gospel, when we come together, that should draw us even into a deeper praise of God and worship. As we come together and say, isn't this God so good who has saved us and redeemed us so that we can know him and know his son Jesus who came to make us right with him? And so the church is geared around worship and the gospel. And then in verse 13, we're also to praise him in our homes. Look at the end. Of verse 13, it says that you might tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. So we're to praise Him in our homes. We're to communicate God's greatness to our kids, to the next generation. And so for parents, one of your highest callings is to disciple your kids, to teach them about God, to teach them about Jesus, to teach them about worship and how to worship. You can do this in your homes. But one way you can do this is to entertain questions. I know a lot of times as parents, you know, we get asked a lot of questions by our kids. And we, we can have a tendency to kind of brush them off sometimes. Grandparents, this might be true for you too, to, to hear question after question. But one of the greatest ways we can teach our kids is listening to their questions and having a safe place for them to ask questions and even express doubt. You know why? Why do we? Why do we give in church? This was a this was a recent conversation in our house. Why do we give? Why do we give an offering in church? And so we had an opportunity there to just have a conversation around what is the purpose of giving. Well, when we give, we're saying, God, this all came from you. You've provided everything for us. You even gave us the ability to work so that we could get paid. And, and we would have none of this if it wasn't for you first giving it to us. And God has asked, he's commanded, and he's also asked us to give back to him what he first gave to us. I, I'm under the conviction that we still are to give 10% of whatever we get financially. And so we give back to him, and what the Bible teaches is that when you do that, there's a couple of things you're doing. First, you're showing gratitude. In your heart, you're saying, Lord, I would not have this if you didn't first give it to me. So thank you. And here's that 10% you asked for, or that you commanded, really. But then we're, what we're also doing is we're showing faith. We're trusting him. 
We're saying, Lord, you've given me enough. In, in this 90%, that's enough for me. I'm going to give you the 10% because that's what you've commanded. And so it's an act of faith and trust. It's an act of obedience. It's an act of worship. And it's really giving him back the gratitude because he's provided for us. And so that's just a very simple conversation that you can have with your kids or with your grandkids. And that's actually one of the highest critiques of the next generation in church is that, you know, young people don't give, older people give. This is a pretty common conversation in church. And so what greater way to teach them? You know, I just gave you a little sermonette on giving. But what greater way to teach the next generation than your parents sitting down with you and saying, do you know why we give? Here's what we give in church. Do you know why we do that? And so we're teaching the next generation about God, and we're praising Him. And we can do this with all kinds. Why do we do the confession? You know, maybe you start that conversation with your kids. Hey, do you know that part in our worship where we confess, we do that confession time, and we read off the screen? Do you know why we do that? And that opens up a door with your kids to be able to talk to them about that. Why do we pray? Why do we worship? Why do we sing the songs we sing? Why, do, why does Pastor Kent get up there and talk for 40 minutes? What, what's, what's all this about? Right? We're teaching the next generation. Why are we doing that? We're doing that so that God will receive more praise and more worship. And so all of this comes back to the fact that we have said God, the Lord, is great. And because he is great, he is greatly to be praised. He is greatly to be praised in our hearts, in our churches, in our homes, and in our world. And the more we understand what he's done for us in Jesus Christ through the gospel, the more we'll be able to do that, and the more we'll be able to help others do that as well. Which in the end, brings glory to God, and brings glory to Jesus. And so the Lord is great, and he is greatly to be praised. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that though you are king and though you are holy and righteous and though we have sinned against you, in your grace and in your love for us, you have made it possible for us to come back into relationship with you. So, Lord, we praise you for that. And we pray now as we continue in worship, as we as we remember what you've done for us at the cross, as we give, as we sing, would you continue to remind us of the good news of the gospel so that we can praise you as you 